Heavenly Father, we pray that through your Holy Spirit you would open our hearts and minds so that we might hear what you have to say to us this morning. And Lord, may you also change us by your word so that we love your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, more and more and follow him. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, some years ago, it's quite a few years ago now, I was made office manager. Now, if you think that was the pinnacle of my rather mediocre career, you're rather mistaken. Unfortunately, I drew the short straw. I think um, the only other person in contention, the last time he was in charge of the administrative staff, um, we almost walked out. So, and because my management style was more of the Sergeant Wilson um, type of school, I would you mind awfully? Well, maybe not the awfully bit. Um, I got the job. If you don't know, I, I realize a lot of, men, most of you are probably younger than I am. You might be wondering what on earth I'm talking about. Sergeant Wilson from Dad's Army. Probably oughtn't to recommend it these days as the BBC have put trigger warnings on it. But if you want to live dangerously, have a look on YouTube or indeed um, Google it. Anyway, so the reason I mention um, my exalted position as office manager was that as part of my role, I had to um, occasionally buy various items. We'd gone cashless in the organization I was in before, you know, we'd almost gone cashless these days. So to enable us to purchase these expenses, we were sent a, a credit card for general purchase items. And so this card, credit card, came through the post. I opened it up, looked at the PIN number and all the passwords, put it away um, in a safe, secure place. And then the next day, an email came, and um, it asked for various details, more than likely the PIN number. But anyway, um, it all looked very convincing, the same logo as the bank. The timing was just about right. I'd only just received it the day before. But, you know, I work on the basis, if I can put off today what I'm going to do tomorrow, um, I'll do it. So I thought, well, okay, well, I'll leave it. I'll do it tomorrow. Fortunately, my idleness, for once, um, paid off because next day an email came around from the um, department I worked for saying, there's an email going around requesting details of this uh, general purpose card, this credit card. Don't, under any circumstances, provide any details. It's a scam. Uh, I mean, say, this was probably about 14-odd years ago, so maybe not in its infancy, but not as prevalent as perhaps now. But I have to be honest, I was almost taken in. It looked convincing. Um, it, you know, certainly sort of didn't arouse my suspicion, which probably suggests how gullible I am. But nonetheless, um, it was interesting just how similar it was to an actual genuine sort of email from a bank. So, why do I recall this particular story? Well, in the verses we're looking at here in 1 John, John returns. He's already warned the Christians he's writing to before, back in the middle of chapter 2, about those who were suggesting, teaching, preaching that Jesus Christ, he wasn't the Christ wasn't um, the Jesus that these believers had first believed in. 
the Jesus they'd heard about from the apostles. You know, and these false ideas were dangerous. In, t- in fact, they could, you know, wreck their faith if they were actually to put their trust in, in these false um, messages about the true Jesus. So, um, and this is something which is just as relevant as us 2,000 plus years ago or so. Now, it's something we need to weigh up. We need to evaluate. We need to test when we hear people talk about Jesus. Which Jesus is it they're actually talking about? Which Jesus is it they actually believe in? So, we're going to look at verses 1 to 3 to begin with. The flesh test. As I say, the Christians John was writing to in this letter, at best they were going to be confused and perplexed. At worst, they would end up believing in a falsehood, a lie about the real Jesus Christ. Indeed, it has the potential and had the potential to wreck their faith, shipwreck it. And where did this danger come from? Have a look at verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Jesus himself, as you may remember, warned that there would be false prophets. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. That's uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Exactly what was the nature of the false teaching these um, false prophets um, peddled is not entirely sure. Um, But it seems the false teaching centered around the person of Jesus Christ. The false teachers were teaching, among other things, that Jesus could not have been both fully God and fully man the incarnate Jesus Christ. No doubt they presented such teaching in such a way that this falsehood, this untruth, this heresy was not easily detectable in their sort of teaching. I mean, if their teaching had had been that far removed from the truth, so so when they first heard it, um, it seemed, you know, it, it seemed very far from what they'd first believed, then I'm sure John wouldn't have felt the necessity to write, to warn them of this. No doubt it was subtly different to the teaching that um, John, the Christians John was writing to had heard. Subtly different, but subtly deadly. As I say, we don't exactly know what... Um, they were preaching, other than the fact it related to Jesus Christ, particularly the fact that he could not be in fully God and fully man. There was a movement, I'm sure many of you have heard of it, called Gnosticism, uh, which means knowledge, Gnosis, knowledge. But really, that was between the 2nd and the 5th century um, AD, which that heresy plagued the churches. And it's agreed that this letter was probably written no later than 90 AD, so that's the first century. So whether this was a sort of proto-Gnosticism or something which would be developed into um, 
the heresy which um, plagued the early church in the second, fifth centuries. Not entirely sure. But Gnosticism, briefly, and there's many strands to it, one of the strands is, you know, the material creation is inherently evil. Physical bodies are evil. To be spiritual, the physical was to be escaped above all things, to a higher spiritual plane, um, which required special knowledge, gnosis. And apparently this um, heresy, this false teaching, as I said, could be made to sound quite similar to the good news of Jesus, the gospel Jesus that we hear and encounter in the gospels. So, and I say, the, the sort of real false teaching, the false teaching was that he wasn't fully God, a man. Jesus was a spiritual being who came to re reveal to all of those a particular spark which would enable them to attain a spiritual life. And, you know, Jesus hadn't ever been human. He'd received the spirit, uh, and then, you know, on the cross, it had departed. So how were these Christians who were listening to this falsehood, these lies, how would they ensure they were not deceived, taken in by these lies? And John tells them to weigh up and evaluate, to test what they hear. They must be discerning above all things in what they hear. And the test is what is taught about Jesus Christ coming in the flesh, Jesus Christ being born fully God and fully man. And anything else is not the truth. And that's something, as Christians, we still need to do. You and I, all of us, we, we can't fall for these subtle but deadly falsehoods regarding the truth of who Jesus is. Have a look at verse 2, if you've got your Bible. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The spirit of truth. That's the spirit of truth will teach us who Jesus Christ really is. Many years ago, 1969, in fact, Coca-Cola had an advert. Um, it was on television, and I was old enough to remember it. I was eight years old then. And there was a song by the New Seekers called I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing. And the lyrics were changed to say, I'd like to teach, I'd like to buy the, the world a Coke. And the tagline underneath it was, it's the real thing. Now, brands of Coke and what's good or not is really trivial. But to have the real Christ, the real Jesus Christ, isn't trivial. In fact, it's a matter, ultimately, of life or death. We need to follow the real Jesus, the real thing. The Jesus that we encounter in the Gospels. The Jesus, the true witnesses of the life that appeared in Jesus Christ. Those who lived with and followed Jesus, the apostles, people like John. The, the apostles who saw the bodily resurrected Jesus and bore witness to the truth that he had come in the flesh, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. 
The Apostle John, most scholars agree, was the author of this letter. And this is what John wrote in his gospel. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. That's John 1, verse 14. A reading you'll often hear over the Christmas period. But here's the problem. Then and now, when people talk about Jesus, say they believe in Jesus, which Jesus do they actually put their trust in? Jesus the good man? the great teacher, the moral teacher, an example to us all, or the Jesus come in the flesh, fully God or fully man, the Jesus of the Gospels. And you know, that's something we can't agree to disagree about. It's okay for you, and what I believe is okay for me. This is a truth that goes to the heart of a Christian faith. Indeed, if Jesus wasn't both fully God and fully man, what does his death on the cross actually mean, his atoning sacrifice? So we need to judge, we need to weigh up what we hear and what people say when they say they believe in Jesus. The spirit of our age is one of being inclusive, being accepting of all viewpoints. And to do so is the right thing to do. And indeed, it's loving. Anything else is judgmental and hurtful. But that's not what John tells us here, is it? We have to make a judgment. Discern, evaluate, test what people believe and say about Jesus Christ. And how do we know the truth to make that judgment call? when people state they believe in Jesus. We'll take a look at the second half of verse 2. Every spirit, spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Behind every voice, every spokesman, every prophet is a spirit, either the spirit or God, or as verse 6 puts it, the spirit of truth or the spirit of falsehood. And if what they say or state about Jesus Christ is inspired by the Holy Spirit, they will acknowledge, which in the context of this letter means confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, who was fully God and fully man, the incarnate Jesus Christ. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to testify and glorify Christ Jesus when the advocate comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, he goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. That's John, verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 26. And John 16, verse 14. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. And again, just look at uh, verse 2 how John describes the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the name tells us why he came, because he will save his people from his sins. Christ, the anointed one, God's chosen king, by which God rules his world, has come. It means that he came from heaven. 
He existed before he took on human flesh. In the flesh. But he came to earth and lived as a man, as human as us in history, but was without sin. If anyone does not acknowledge that Jesus has come in flesh, then it is not the spirit of truth that inspires their speech or what they believe. Have a look at verse 3. Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is a spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard is coming and even now is in the world. As I've said before, as verse 6 tells us, a spirit of falsehood. I once belonged to a church which had a membership like this and had a statement of faith similar to ours in it. And one of those is about the Lord Jesus Christ, which says he was um, both fully God and fully human, conceived by the uh, Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. There was a couple in that church, well-liked, and one person of that couple, this married couple, probably in passing, he probably didn't uh, consider what what, uh, that person was saying was particularly um, contentious, but suggested that uh, Jesus couldn't have been God. And things developed, and the church leaders got involved, um, and church discipline was exercised. Now, when we talk of church discipline, it has a very negative connotation, rightly or wrongly, wrongly probably, because ultimately it's about restoring people back to the fellowship, and if it's a sin or if it's something they believe, making sure they come back in repentance and faith. So it isn't a negative. It isn't stamping on any sort of uh, body who falls slightly out of line. But anyway, in this instance, uh, despite going through the process of church discipline, the biblical process, which uh, you find in Scripture, the individual didn't um, decide to um, change his um, view of Jesus Christ. And sadly... Um, the couple left. Um, But what I found most interesting was the reaction of some of the members of that church. They somehow felt the leaders had been unloving or lacking grace, and really that didn't seem the way to go about it. And yet when you think about it, isn't that a loving thing to do, to try and get someone to stop believing in something which is untrue and return back to the statement of, case, uh, statement of faith which they must have agreed to and follow the real Jesus. Let's say it's not an optional extra, believing in the incarnate Jesus Christ, although tolerant relativism is the order of the day. The truth itself, people argue, is relative. Your truth isn't necessarily my truth. As I say, stating that invites, uh, at best, skepticism, at worst, ridicule, including those who claim to be Christians. 
I mean, almost 20 years ago, there was a survey, and we all put the caveat that surveys have their own problems amongst pastors of one of the uh, main Protestant denominations in this country concerning what they believed about Jesus Christ. 50% said they did not believe without question in the virgin birth. A third doubted the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, while 25% did not believe that salvation came through Jesus Christ. And I'd be surprised if you had the same survey. It'd be very different amongst mainline Protestant, those historic denominations, be in this country, in Europe, or in the States. Yet as we read this letter of John's, what we believe about the nature, the personhood of Jesus Christ, is of the utmost importance. Just scan over the page of your Bible to chapter 2, verse 23. No one who denies the Son has a Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father. Now look again at verse 3 of chapter 4 we just read. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. So when John writes in verse 3, Jesus, I think it's safe to assume he means the incarnate Jesus Christ, given what he's already taught about, both in this letter and in his gospel, John's gospel. And you see the implication of denying that Jesus has come in the flesh, the incarnate Jesus Christ. We neither have the Father or the Spirit, and all that implies for our eternal hope and future. And thinking back to that example regarding that church member of a church I was once part of, do you see how loving and gracious it was for those leaders to try to convince him that he needed to trust in the real Jesus Christ? Finally, we're going to look at verses 4 to 6 somewhat more briefly. So that's under pressure, but not overcome. The Christians John writes to are under pressure. Back in chapter 2, John spoke of those who had gone out from us, the Antichrists. In this chapter, John warns about false prophets who seek to deceive the Christians he's writing, they're writing to, he's writing to, to knock their confidence and belief, to start doubting what they first believed, what they'd first heard about the real Jesus Christ. And it's probably not hard to imagine, they must have felt hard-pressed on all sides, under attack, maybe even adopting sort of siege mentalities. They become anxious and perplexed by all these uh, messages they're getting about Jesus. And the Jesus they followed wasn't the actual Jesus, and they needed to listen to these false teachers. But see how John's words in verse 4 provide comfort and reassurance. You, dear children, God's children, those who put their trust in Jesus, are from God and have overcome them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, greater than the one who is in the world, 
ultimately behind all messages from the spirit of falsehood is the devil. And time and again we see in the Bible the forces which belong to those who are with God are greater than the forces against them. And often that doesn't appear that way. Events, as we observe, seem opposite. But that's actually not true. The prophet Elisha, in 2 Kings, chapter 6, verses 16, this is what he tells his servant. Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I mean, the background to this was, it's back in the Old Testament, 2 Kings. The king of Aram was um, at war with Israel. But somehow, all of his plans to attack Israel were finding their way to Elisha. God was using Elisha so that he would know what the king of Aram was going to do. And so the king of Aram decided that he would act against Elisha. So the city where Elisha was staying with his servant was surrounded by the army of the king of Aram. And his servant goes out and sees this army surrounding the city. Then Elisha prays that God will open the eyes of his servant. And when God opens the eyes of his servant, he sees the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around the city, all around Elisha. And now events take a different course. So John can reassure those he writes to that they have overcome the spirit of the world because the Holy Spirit who lives in them is much greater. They've, been dece- <clears throat> they've not been deceived or believe the false prophets and their lies because of one who is in you, the one who dwells in them, one who dwells in us, the Holy Spirit. It often looks, as I say, the other way around. It looks like the forces against us, the forces of the evil one, are in control, but they're not. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Again, look at verses 5 and 6. We see a contrast. The false prophets, the antichrists, from what perspective do they come? Verse 5, they are from the world. And they speak from the view point of the world. Ultimately, from one who is in the world, the spirit of falsehood. And is it any wonder that the world listens to them rather than the spirit of truth? The world recognizes its own. And we shouldn't be surprised as we look on events and we look on things in this world, we see exactly the same. You know, our faith, no doubt, increasingly, might at best draw skepticism, at worst ridicule. But that isn't surprising. That's the world's viewpoint, isn't it? We are from God, is how John refers to the apostles writing the name of Christ who chose them to do so. Those who know God in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, will listen to those who witness the life that has come in the flesh, save the apostles. And it's the Holy Spirit which 
enables us to do that, illuminates our mind to follow what is true rather than what is false. We can stand firm because the spirit of truth is in us and continues to testify to us about the truth of Jesus and helps us keep on trusting in him. Let's pray. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is great and the one who is in the world. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that your Holy Spirit speaks to us and tells us the truth about your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us to keep on trusting in the real Jesus Christ, the one we have been taught about and will keep us to the end of the age. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.